Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Eyes of the Dragon, sections 28 through 57. Let's start the show! Flagg's plan to frame Peter for the murder of his father is successful. Peter is tried, convicted, and sentenced to life imprisonment in the top of the needle. His brother, Thomas, is crowned king, but has his doubts about how to run the kingdom, despite the influence of Flagg. Peter realizes that it was Flagg who framed him and plots how to escape his situation. His first move is to ask a favor of Pena, the judge general. But to do that, Peter must first deal with the chief warden. Jay, in the first section of this story, we talked a lot about how it was a lot of setup and character introduction to set up the story. Mm -hmm. In this section of the story, we are now given the setup between the protagonist and the antagonist. Things come to a head and we see the situation that all the characters must deal with now that the inciting event has happened, the death of Roland the Good via poison. This section sort of lays out the problems and situations that everyone's going to deal with. How's Peter going to get out of his situation of being framed for murder? How is Thomas going to deal with having the kingdom thrust upon him? And will Flagg's machinations behind the scenes pay off in his quest to ruin the kingdom? Yes. There is a lot of plot happening here, but underlying it, there's King's attempts to give us some sort of moral for this story. In many fairy tales, that's sort of what the reason for a fairy tale is, is to give a message that the reader or listener can take away from it. So I think it's fair to say that in this story, we should be looking for that. We've now spent enough time with the story that we can start to see some of these morals come to the fore multiple times. And I think the the one that, that I noticed first was this thing about pride and blind spots about pride. And this is most apparent with Flag. Flag has a lot of negative traits, but one thing that he isn't is careless. He's probably the most careful person in the story. He does a lot of things that are very deliberate. He waits a long time. He has endless patience for his designs to unfold as he wishes them to. But he does have pride. And the most dangerous thing about that pride for Flag and for anybody else is to have a blind spot about that pride. Mm. He doesn't know that that pride is causing him problems, is going to kind of get him in trouble one of these days, right? There's a line, men like Flag are full of pride and confidence in themselves, and although they may see much, they are sometimes strangely blind. That happens a couple of times to Flag once when he shows Thomas where the secret passage is to view the, through the eyes of the dragon. And another one is when he kind of, every time he underestimates both Thomas and Peter is like another thing where he just, especially Thomas. 
Thomas is in the position, the best position to undermine Flag, but because Thomas is still very young and he's still worried about what he needs Flag to to get him through a, a day as king, it's not apparent that he would ever do anything to undermine Flag. But I think as soon as Thomas has an opportunity or a need to do something against Flag's wishes, he's just gonna, right, gonna completely uh, overturn whatever Flag's trying to do. That is Flag's pride and his blindness to his pride about doing things like that, underestimating people like Thomas, like telling people about secret passages that they don't need to know about. It's that type of thing. And like all good fairy tales and fables, it is often the person's strong suit that becomes their downfall. Mm. Flag having this pride and that being what may lead to his downfall would be the comeuppance that we might expect in a fable. Yes. Yeah, so the other secondary moral that we see is the fact that Thomas is entrusted, whether on purpose by Flag or accidentally when he sees through the eyes of the dragon the murder of his father, he's the keeper of secrets. Mm. And in doing so, he is forced to lie. Those lies, these secrets, are what is causing Thomas the most amount of angst and insecurity about his position. And King seems to be telling us in the story that an abundance of secrets are not good for not only an individual, but for the kingdom as a whole. Flag is the keeper of secrets, and we know that he is evil. Whereas Roland the Good, despite all of his other shortcomings, didn't seem to be one who carried a lot of secrets. He was very upfront about his personality. And we have seen from Peter that he also is one who speaks his mind and is not keeping secrets from people. I wonder if that is another moral that King is trying to get across in this story. Yeah, that secrets are a form of lie and lies kind of cause you to decay mentally over time. There's a price to pay for every lie you, every secret you keep. Yes. And even when you hold on to it longer and longer, the more destructive it becomes. Mm -hmm. This is sort of balanced by the one secret that Peter seems to have, which is his secret cubbyhole mm -hmm. where Flag frames him. And it is a known thing. His butler knows about the secret passage and he's okay with it because he's like, oh, Peter just, I looked at it once and he just keeps letters and little toys in there. and It's nothing because Peter has nothing to hide. He never puts anything into that secret cubbyhole except yeah. for little things that, hey, I just keep it in there. It's not anything that I'm trying to keep from anybody. It's just a little storage place that I have. It's more about privacy than secrets. Yeah, and even not privacy. I think that you get the sense that it's more of, hey, I'm a 10-year-old boy. I like to have a place to put my cool stuff. Mm -hmm. He's totally upfront and open about that. It's another way that King is showing us that Peter is a forthright person. Yes. Which transitions nicely into our next subject. Throughout the first part of this story, we're shown how Peter is a good prince and that the people think that he is going to be a great king one day. They can tell by the tone of his voice and the actions he takes. And at the end of this section that we read, we see that come to the forefront again. Even though Peter has been imprisoned, 
he's able to use his moral authority to tell the chief warden. He fights against the chief warden and, and holds himself in such a way that after he he gets the better of the chief warden in a fight, even the chief warden realizes I'm speaking to the king, even though he's no longer king and he's been in prison. Yeah. He's just shocked by the, the power he has. And so we see how Peter is set up as this perfect king. And yet when he is accused of the murder of his father, the people turn on him quickly. Yeah, it takes almost nothing to make the entire kingdom decide that he's absolutely guilty of what he's being accused of, and he should be treated worse than the worst criminal. Right. There's a line in the, the chapter that's, the people wanted a good king they could love, but they also wanted to know that they had been saved by only a hair's breadth from a bad one. They wanted blackness and secrets. They wanted their fearful tale of rotten royalty. Sean, you and I kind of chewed on this one for a while, and I struggled a little bit with a way to make sense of this beyond maybe some more base aspects of human nature. But I was thinking about it some more recently, and I think what it might be is a little bit of that maybe reptilian part of our brains where we don't like to be reminded of the fact that somebody else is better than we are in some way. If we have an opportunity for that person who is better than we are in any any way, not every way, not not that they are perfect and we are imperfect. It's just that they're, you know, maybe they can run faster or jump higher or or whatever. It's we don't want that to be true because of the fact that we we envy that. So we're happy to see them brought low brought at least back to our level. And I think here, if we apply that that same idea, it's Peter was so perfect. He was so ideal that it was okay if he became king because it made sense. It followed all the rules and he was a, an ideal person. But the opportunity to see him brought low, to see him brought down, not just to the level of the, the common citizen of this kingdom, but below that, to someone who was a convicted felon who would be imprisoned for life, that's satisfying. That lets everybody at a subconscious level realize, maybe I'm not so bad because look how bad he is now. Despite the fact that if they just think about it for a minute, right. they know that they're losing an opportunity to have a truly wonderful leader of their kingdom and substituting him for or with his brother, who is, if nothing else, too young to really do a good job or an equal job. Yeah, I think that that's it exactly. They're not thinking the long term. They're thinking of those base desires and what is immediately yep. making them feel good about themselves as opposed to what's best for the kingdom. And when reading this section, I was reminded of how much Stephen King loves Shirley Jackson, and in particular, her short story, The Lottery. And we see how quickly the crowd wants a scapegoat. Because it's horrible when a king dies unexpectedly. And there is confusion in the kingdom. And there is a need for the power vacuum to be filled. And when there is uncertainty about this, they want to blame somebody. And so it's very easy to point to whoever's accused first. And Flag realizes that and understands how a group of people will work and is able to 
play upon that to get them to turn on you. Absolutely. The other piece of this is that Thomas knows that he shouldn't be king. Mm-hmm. At first, it does. he doesn't realize it. I don't think he thinks through like, oh, Peter did not kill our father and he should be king. I think he's just sort of overwhelmed by everything that has happened. And his first thoughts are like, hey, I'm jealous of my brother, but I never wanted to be king. I just didn't like the fact that he was getting all the attention. Yep. His jealousy is very specific. He wanted the attention of his father. He didn't like the fact that his brother could do no wrong and he was seen as lesser than. He was never envious in a way that he wanted something that Peter had or would have, which is the kingdom. But it only takes a day for that to change. Yeah. And Thomas to realize, hey, now I'm the king. All those jewels that are down there, they're all mine. And I have a certain power and respect and people are looking at me in a different way. He does not want to give that up in any way. Just that little piece of power is enough to keep him going on. And that's not what you want in a king either. And and Stephen King, the author, is balancing that for us. He's showing us that Peter didn't necessarily want to be king, but he would be a good king. Mm-hmm. Thomas doesn't want to be king, and he's a bad king. But once he gets to be king, he likes it. Yeah. It's all presented in the from the framework of Thomas being, I forget how old he is at this point, but he's like, I don't know, like less than 10? Or 10-ish, maybe? I don't know. I, I thought he was like 12, but yeah, your point remains. He's very young. He's very young. So all of the things that he thought were unfair, the things that he was actually envious of, didn't really, they either didn't make sense or they weren't important or they wouldn't be important to anybody else. Like who who actually owns those jewels? You know, the the, the riches that are in the king's safe or his dungeon or wherever, uh, his treasury. Who does that wealth belong to? Is it the people of the kingdom? Is it the king's personal purse? Is it something, some combination of those two things? Thomas was a little kid when he first learned of this stuff, and he formed some opinions about it that it seems like nobody corrected him on. And so now that he's reached the ripe old age of 12 and actually is the king, that's where his focus is. That's where he's spending his mental energy as the ruler of this whole kingdom. And that stuff just doesn't matter. But Flag is using that and King Stephen King is using that to show us like, not only is he a bad king, but uh, he's kind of petty and now obsessed with power and wealth that come with this new role that he has. And it's for the worst reasons. Because he's still he's still too young and inexperienced to even know that he's he doesn't care about the right things yet, right? And again, at the end of this section, we're shown Peter who is able to use that kingly authority, even though he's not king, yeah, to gain the respect not only of the chief warden who has imprisoned him and belittling him and doesn't care if he abuses him, and he's able to gain that person's respect. And then he's able to send a letter to Pena, the judge general, the chief solicitor, and so enough doubt in Pena's mind, or there's already been enough doubt sown that he's like, wait, I, yeah, I'll do a favor for you. Peter's able to realize that even with the little amount of power he has, he's going to be able to turn that into something else. 
But more importantly, he's showing that even though he is the rightful king, he realizes that that's not the way to use his power. He should not yell, I'm the king and I should be king because that's going to throw everything off. Mm -hmm. He's aware enough to use his political machinations in such a way that he's got a plan in place. And that's another sign of a king, right? He's able to strategize and think a few steps ahead. He's not living in the moment. And I just think it's really great how that character has been put together. We said earlier that this story doesn't have a whole lot of layers to it. Yeah. I think that characterization of Peter is one step beyond what you might see in other fairy tales, where the good king is going to do what's right and, and do it in such a way that he'll pull, pull the sword out of the stone or he'll show the chief justice that I was not the murderer, it was this man. And this story is a little more mature than that and isn't going that route. It's going to go a different route to get there. At least we think, assuming it has a happy ending, which we don't know. Right. But it's also Stephen King, so you know he's going to spend four or five hundred pages writing, telling the story, as opposed to <laughs> I don't know what the thirty in Hansel and Gretel, right? It's like oh, there you go. <laughs> but one of the things that um, I don't want this to come across as too much of a criticism because I I, I am enjoying this the story and and the book overall so far. Every once in a while, I kept thinking it feels like King is making this up as he goes along. And well, he is a fiction writer, Jay. Yeah, but in a way, in a way that seems more apparent than he than it might otherwise in an, in something else that he's done. I'll give you that he's literally making up every part of this. But a good storyteller and a a good writer will organize his thoughts, the plot, and the the overarching uh, and and the larger story arcs and the character arcs in a way that things that pay off at the end are set up at the beginning. So it feels like things are established before they need to be important. Mm. I wonder if giving King the the maximum benefit of the doubt, I wonder if he's doing this deliberately so that it does feel a bit more like the grandparent sitting by the side of the grandchild's bed, reading a, a story or even making up a fairy tale as they go and giving this a kind of verisimilitude in that regard i think that is the most generous reading of this and i'm willing to buy into that i'm i'm willing to just accept that full stop and talk no further on this but i just wanted to point out a couple of things that that made me think this in the first place one is the the way that king constructs the legal system in delane it's like there's no hint of a legal system until it's time for a trial. Then suddenly there is an entire legal system. And money. There's no hint of what kind of economic system they have in, in Delane until somebody needs to pay for something with money. And there's no hint of religion until somebody needs to pray or, or hope that, a, that some set of gods will help them in the situation. And I know that some things like money and laws and religion are so assumed in our real world, in our current modern society, that maybe you don't need to explain them. You don't need to say what those things are, but it would have been and probably would have been done by King in a different book. But because he wrote this in a more of a fairy tale style and was probably deliberately trying to keep this feeling like you know grandpa making up a story 
that he didn't feel the need to go back and weave in some of these the world building earlier in the book but these things did stand out what what are your thoughts on that i didn't have a problem with it because again i think that this is supposed to be a fairy tale and in most stories we don't get a lot of world building and things aren't apparent until we need them i'm not showing the flying cars in blade runner until harrison ford gets into the flying car and starts driving it. like I, I didn't need them to show me what chrysler making a flying car was before that so i was a little bit okay with it and then when you pointed out the religion one that's the one that threw me hmm. when peter sits down and he prays i was thrown out of the story and said who's he praying to is it the man jesus like sylvia pitson and in, in the gunslinger or is it some other strange religion that i don't know about because i don't know what the lane has and i don't know if it's supposed to be our world or a different world and when they said he prayed it, it it threw me out of out of the story for a bit there i could see where if he were trying to create a, a, a whole world that it might be important to have some sort of understanding of a monetary system or how the law works especially when we're shown a theocracy, or not a theocracy, we're shown a, a kingdom, and then there's all of a sudden lawyers who are spread out across the land. It does seem a little bit odd, but I didn't have quite as much of a problem with it as it These are the types of things that usually it takes like one sentence to, to happen on, in chapter two, so that in chapter 30, it just has a little bit more weight. You see this in movies all the time where like a, somebody will, will critique a movie and say, if someone had just said, blah, 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 then when this thing happened in the third act, it would have made sense. But because no one said blah, blah, it just came out of left field and makes no sense. So in terms of like things to criticize the story for, this is really lightweight stuff and it's really not a big deal. But just like the religion thing kind of threw you out of the story, the first time I saw somebody say Gilder or the first time I saw now there's a whole bunch of lawyers and they do this and the process is that and and they have to come and they and they're in charge of these jurisdictions and all that. It's like all of the explanation and the scene were all on top of each other and that King could have done a little bit of that before he needed it and it would have felt a little bit more just better established. So yeah, at some point King Roland is talking to his advisor's flag and Peña, the solicitor general. Right. And that would have been enough to, oh, okay, so we know that there's a lawyer of some sort, that, and then he shows up later. Or Peter says to the horse stableman, I'll I'll have my father dock you a gilder if you don't listen to me. Yeah. You've got the money in there. Right. Yeah. That's all. I mentioned uh, a little bit about the man Jesus who's in The Gunslinger, but let's see if there's any other Dark Tower things. So the first obvious one that I noticed is the Tower of the Needle, where Peter is imprisoned. It seems to have some symbolic significance within this story. For sure, yeah. An important scene when Peter is sentenced to imprisonment, and they make a point of him going to the stairs and looking up and realizing that there are many steps above him that he's going to have to climb to meet his fate at the top of the tower, which seems to mirror Roland's enslaved. Kind of makes you feel bad for the jailers. Like they need to be at the top of the tower, but they don't live there, right? They got to climb those steps multiple times a day, probably. 
Right. Like, oh, here's the food for the one prisoner at the top of the tower. Now carry it up all the steps. It seems sort of odd that they're putting their prisoners at the top of a tower when it's been made clear that there are dungeons in the castle itself. And there seems to be quite a lot of security for what seems to be a, a prison of one cell. Yeah. You can't climb out the window because if you did, you'd fall to your death. You can't climb down the wall because it's too smooth. You can't kick down the door or break down the door or tunnel out because it's a tower. And the door is reinforced over and over again with all sorts of locks and, and stuff. So it's really high security for one prisoner. So yeah, what is it? Do you need to be special? Do you need to be like a condemned prince? Do you need to be Rapunzel? Maybe Peter's going to get a poster of Rita Hayworth. Yeah. He's going to get the rock hammer and he's going <laughs> to chisel his way out and he's going to go, <laughs> don't! There's, that's right, this is a tower. <laughs> but of course, the thinny part of this that I think you were alluding to is that this is a tower. It's not, yes. it's not a dark tower. It is, is a, this is a, a symbolic tower for the kingdom of Delane. They hold grand ceremonies at its foot. They, it's, it's a centerpiece to their skyline. It's something that they celebrate, not fear. And apparently it's also a high-class exclusive prison. But it's the club fed of Delane. When Peter makes his ascent up the staircase, it's a solemn moment for him. And he is wise enough and aware enough at that moment that he he gives it the gravity of, of that it deserves. He he kind of like counts every step and, and he and each step is meaningful for him. And it is much like when Roland finally reached and climbed to the top of the Dark Tower. Yes. Another thingy is that at one point when I think it was just when Peter was arrested and everybody in Delane was sort of like confused and upset that outside the wind screamed and gobbled, old wives cringed in their beds and slept poorly and told their husbands that Rhiannon, the dark witch of the coos, was riding her hateful broom this night and wicked work was afoot. Of course. I said to myself, good old Rhea, with a slightly different spelling, but I'm pretty sure it's the same person. Which of the coos, definitely. Which of the coos, yeah. It's, it's Rhea of the coos, back in action, or at least re referenced as a scary story you tell your kids to get them to shut up and go to sleep, right? Yeah. Yeah, we learned her, her full first name, Rhiannon. Like, so I guess Rhea short for Rhiannon. The last Dark Tower thingy that I had in my notes was a line, there were perhaps 70 people in that great dining hall, rough-dressed riders, what we would call knights, I suppose. And I thought, or gunslingers? Mm. Rough-dressed riders in the great dining hall. That definitely reminded me a lot of Roland's childhood in Gilead, uh, how the gunslingers were travelers and peacekeepers and... Knights of the Kingdom, basically. Yeah, but they dressed like Clint Eastwood in the Spaghetti Westerns. And I, I, I think these were gunslingers. We know that Delane is in somewhere on the same map as Gilead, so why, why wouldn't there be? So as we've said before, this whole book is, in some senses, one thinny, but it's good to point out specific ones as we come across them. Absolutely. So we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who continue to support our show and are getting access to exclusive Patreon content. 
such as bonus podcast episodes, including our most recent on a film adaptation of One for the Road. You can find out more by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. We got this awesome email from Giovanni V. He says, hey guys, big fan of the podcast. I finished my first journey to the tower last night and I'm still processing everything. What a trip. I can't say I'm disappointed. I'm rather satisfied, actually. Ka is a wheel. Do you guys have any recommendations for another book series? Well, thank you, Giovanni. We love the feedback. And Sean and I do have a few suggestions for you. The first one I'll suggest is the Expanse series by James S.A. Corey. How about you, Sean? To stay along with Stephen King, the Bill Hodges trilogy, which starts off with Mr. Mercedes, and a spinoff of that trilogy is The Outsider, which is now a HBO TV series. Good suggestion. Another one I'll recommend is the Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons. This is a four-book series that I have recommended many, many times to people. And um, if you like The Dark Tower and you like science fiction at all, I think you'll enjoy this. And my last two are crime series with what might be uh, gunslinger-type characters, Knights Errant. The first is Travis McGee books by John D. MacDonald, which are a favorite of Stephen King's. And, are, and then the Matt Scudder books by Lawrence Block are another fine. Absolutely. Those should keep you busy for quite a while, Giovanni. Yeah. And you could always just keep rereading The Dark Tower on the back burner in between for a while you're reading these. And then we got a, a post on Facebook recently from Sean B, who responded to a question that we posed in our episode on One for the Road, episode 78. And Sean says, great show. I had long forgotten this short story, referring to One for the Road. You asked what happened to Mark Petrie and Ben Mears after they burned down the town. In Wolves of the Kala, Father Callahan tells Roland that Black 13 sent him Todash twice once to the funeral of Ben Mears in Los Zapatos, where he saw a much older Mark. The other trip was to the court of the Crimson King, which he refuses to elaborate on. And Sean, thank you for that reminder. I had totally forgotten about the fact that Father Callahan got to see basically the end, the absolute end of Ben Mears' story, because he saw his funeral. And uh, now we know that he didn't, or are reminded, thanks to you, that he didn't die by the hands of any vampires. He lived out many more years of his life and I guess stayed close with Mark. If they didn't stay together, they Mark showed up to his funeral at least. So, Well, that's assuming that A, Father Callahan saw the Ben Mears that he remembers from his world and not the Ben Mears from another. True. And that B, Black 13, did not send him a false image of some sort. Like the wizard's rainbow has been known to do. Mm, you make a you make a very good point there, Sean. But you're probably right, Sean. Uh, I, I I think that that's just Jay and I having a brain fart and forgetting about that scene in uh, Wolves of the Call. So thanks for reminding us. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for the feedback. And uh, once again, uh, you guys can email us at two guys at gmail dot com for any feedback, and uh, we're always happy to hear from you. We're always happy to hear from fun stuff if you've got any fun stuff for us. But until then, let's hear from Jay and I. Jay, what do you got? I love fun stuff. So one thing I that I noted was, once a spider skittered halfway across Flag's book, 
touched the spell so terrible not even the magician dared use it, and turned instantly to stone. Flag grinned. The construction of that sentence is fun, but the idea that a written spell, just the words of the spell, are so evil and enchanted that touching the letters will turn you to stone is just bonkers to me, and I love the idea of this. It makes sense in like a magic, a book of magic spells way. Like, of course, yeah. If you say this spell, who knows what kind of bad stuff is going to happen? But if you just touch the letters, oh man, you turn to stone. And the fact that it was like a spider just happened to, because the spider doesn't understand the letters are or anything. It's just more. It's just an object to walk over, and it turned to stone. And and flag just was tickled by this. It's like, oh yeah, that that's my entertainment for the evening. Spider turning to stone. Spiders don't have a very long uh, lifespan around Flag. They either get crushed in his hand or turned to stone. Yeah. Not a good place to be. Stay out of his workshop, spiders. <laughs> Flag is not a friend to spiders. I noted the word Shakos, which is referred to by King when the soldiers are thought to be ready for the coronation of peter as king and they're wearing their shakos and then later on when it turns out that peter has been accused of murder they change to their more warlike helmets and i had no idea what a shakos was until i read the definition a cylindrical or conical military hat with a brim and a plume or pom-pom so like the hats uh marching bands wear yeah shakos i had never heard the term before so that's a cool word shakos hmm. with the the famous like British guard be a Shakos too with the the fuzzy hat that they wear. Yeah, I think so. Because it's the beef eaters. It, it, yeah, it's cylindrical. Yeah, it's all pom pom. Yeah, it's one hundred percent pom pom. <laughs> it's all pom pom. <laughs> There's a moment when Pena is reflecting that with the downfall of King Roland, that since the death of King Roland, all the knights had been cold, as if in reproach for the way the old king had burned from the inside out. And that made me think of the movie Excalibur, which is an adaptation of the story of King Arthur. And in that, there is a central theme that the king and the land are one. And, and I saw a reflection of that here, that, that King Roland and the land were one because when he died, winter set in and all the nights were cold. I wanted to point out that Brandon, Peter's butler, says terrible like Charles Barkley. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible, man. <laughs> it's odd because Brandon doesn't seem to have very much of a other accent or dialect way of talking, but it just comes across when he's talking to his son about what happens and he realizes it's terrible. I read that, I don't know, however many times it appears on the page, and it never even dawned on me that about Charles Barkley connection until you mentioned it. And now I can't not think of that every time. <laughs> so, so thank you. You're welcome. I was really impressed at how hard Delane parties because they almost stayed out till dark. On the day and then the night of Thomas's coronation, the, the line is, by seven that night, most of the population of the city was reeling through the streets, drinking to the health of Thomas the Lightbringer, 
or brawling with each other. It was nearly dark when the revelers finally began to disperse. <laughs> so it sounds like they had a great giant party to celebrate their new king. And then before dark, the very same day, they were all like, all right, got to go home. Night, <laughs> folks. It's dusk. See you at work tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we can't stay out too late now. Yeah, so they really party hard in Delane. Well, on that note, that's going to be it for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover the Eyes of the Dragon, sections 58 through 93. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. So you want to start or you want me to start? Trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> So, Jay, where is... (laughs) Consummate professionals.